<laughs> I'm not going to get through it all. <laughs> I did three talks and tried to put them into one, so we'll see what happens. I found an interesting piece of information in um, the Buddha Dhamma magazine sometime today, I don't remember when. I don't particularly want to keep the conversation going on about choice, but, but hear this. In Thailand, and indeed many countries, fortune tellers and palmists are very popular. But good palmists will refuse to look at the palm of someone who is seriously meditating. They say that when someone starts a meditation practice, all bets are off. <laughs> One cannot confidently predict the future of someone who has started to practice at the level of sila, samadhi, and <laughs> Looks like we have some choice. And the meditation gives that to us. sure I got it perfect now. (laughs) So, uh, we are going to continue our exploration of the three characteristics, and today I'm going to talk about dukkha. And I want to start with um, a story from um, Grace Shirenson, I think her name is again, I can't remember exactly, Um, this older uh, Zen uh, woman teacher. And she uh, talks about back when she first started meditating. I was back, she lived in San Francisco, like the late 60s. And everybody was kind of looking at all the different ways you could get high. And um, meditation was considered a possible avenue for that. (laughs) So she decides to go, Suzuki Roshi's kind of famous, this small Zen master, kind of famous. And she's like, I'm going to go to him and, and maybe he can, you know, tell me how to get high with meditation. So she says, we spent, like what, we spent what seemed like two hours meditating with him over the next ten minutes. <laughs> this is our first time, right? The discomfort in my undisciplined mind was running away with me. Would this work? Would I get high? What was taking so long? <laughs> I was able to put aside my discomfort because I knew the goodies in my high were coming soon. When we finished our meditation, we turned towards Suzuki Roshi for our personal map to getting high. He knew he had our full attention. We hung on his every word. He began with words that promised us our place in the high zone, the ticket to getting high from Zen. The more you... um, The more you come to practice, the more you practice Zen... Uh, uh, the more you know, uh, uh, the more you realize, the more you know that, uh, and then he concluded, the more you know that life is suffering. (laughs) We were too stunned to react. Suffering. The more you practice Zen, the more you realize that life is suffering. We were so horrified that we didn't have time to consider what had happened. After Suzuki Roshi's pronouncement, all we could manage was getting out of that Zen center as fast as we could. I doubt we even said thank you and goodbye. My sister and I raced back to the East Bay. We were definitely not going to discuss what had happened. But my mind kept reviewing the events. How could he seem so light and be so heavy? Was he joking? Why would anybody practice Zen if realization of suffering was increased? Was he putting us on? I couldn't figure my way around the dilemma his comment created because he beamed so happily when he said it. (laughs) So here's like the great paradox. In um, our, our meditation practice, we actually make a study of suffering. Like, what is suffering? Why do we suffer in this world? And usually we think, well, wow, that's going to be turn out pretty heavy and we're going to, you know, that's like, like, that's no fun. 
Um, but paradoxically, what happens is that we become lighter and we become happier and our minds get more spacious. Like all the energy that we put into avoiding the truth of the way things are. And by the way, he might not have said life is suffering. That's That might be her memory, but usually it's more like there is suffering rather than life is suffering. Um, but all the energy we put into avoiding suffering is now freed up to live life, to connect with this wild, awesome world that we have been born into. So I wanted to start out that way just to let you know we are going to talk about dukkha. <laughs> we are going to talk about suffering, but it's not, um, it's not meant to be a drag. That isn't the way it's pointing. It's pointing towards... I mean, basically suffering is, is, is the contraction or the limitation of our hearts and minds are who we are. And freedom is the unbinding of our hearts and our minds. And we turn towards suffering in order to um, free the heart and mind of that kind of bondage, that, the, that self-created bondage. But you can't just jump like she just wanted to get high and jump to like, let's just jump to the freedom. <laughs> it would be nice if it worked that way, but usually we have to um, duke it out with dukkha <laughs> a little bit, a lot, quite a bit usually. So if you've been duking it out with dukkha, you're, you're right on track. Like you're, you're seeing, you're exploring, like why is it that I suffer? Why is it that I don't feel at peace? Because that's why we're, we're looking for peace, right? That deepest rest of heart and mind. And uh, the way out is through. So the Buddha did um, address social dukkha. I'm not going to talk about it today, but he did. i just like to point out that he did address like dukkha on the societal level. The precepts are are the communal level. The precepts are about that. Um, Sila, generosity. There's so many teachings about um, relieving suffering on the um, communal and uh, societal level. The teachings that we are going to address today and that we often look at in in these kind of silent retreats is is the dukkha or the suffering on the individual level of this heart-body-mind process. And... um, what we can do to, to free ourselves. The Buddha was an, um, an extreme scientist of the mind, and I think that his analysis of dukkha is um, really the most brilliant analysis of suffering that, that I've ever heard. Um, and basically, he talks about three kinds of dukkha, three kinds of suffering. That's the general word we use, so there's many translations. And each one, I think Chaz mentioned this yesterday, each one is a little bit um, more kind of deeper, more profound, and more pervasive. And each one points to kind of these existential challenges that we have of being human beings in a world where everything is changing all the time, where change is constant. So the challenges of having taken birth in this particular kind of universe. So the first level of dukkha is a level um, that is pretty obvious to people. It's unpleasant experiences. So it's, you know, body aches, mind, turbulence. You've probably had some tastes of that in the last couple days. The second level of dukkha is the dukkha associated with change. And so this is dukkha that points towards um, even pleasant experiences contain the, the, the possible seed of suffering because we want to hold on to them. And that holding on is dukkha. And the third kind is, um, is the hardest to understand. Um, it's the fact that we are... Um, you could say contingent creatures, that we are, um, we are this, 
I am. This is the result of many causes and conditions coming together, kind of the causality that um, Chaz talked about yesterday, coming together, and that it's always changing. And so kind of the stress of that, the stress of, of being a contingent creature or being um, where everything is always unchanging and unstable. Like you can't kind of peg it down. It's so un- uncontrollable. And the kind of constant um, sense impingement that we feel, the sense contact that we feel because we are contingent, that we can't separate ourselves out um, from life. So that's the summary of the three. And now I'll talk a little more in depth. Anyway, I love talking about dukkha. The first time I heard about it, I was like, yeah, somebody's finally talking about the way things are. And uh, I grew up in a home with a lot of denials, so for me it's like, let's just put it out on the table. And and, uh, that's why I like to talk about it. To me it's refreshing. (laughs) And um, there's something about naming it and normalizing it. It's like it's not your fault. It's 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 the challenge of, of this universe that we live in. See, I'm going to be doing this as we go So the first kind of dukkha is called dukkha dukkha. And as I said, it's uh, suffering as conventionally understood. Um, body aches, pains, unpleasant body sensations, unpleasant mental um, experiences, turbulent emotions. And um, yeah, basically, uh, the Buddha is saying, you know, we don't we don't get through a, a human life without a fair amount of unpleasantness. It's part of of being a human being. And what we do with meditation, which is kind of counterintuitive, our, our, our evolutionary conditioning is like, get, no, right? We don't want, get rid of. But with meditation, what we do is we actually turn towards that, as the instructions we're suggesting today. We turn towards um, unpleasant experiences of body and mind to see if we can understand where the suffering is. How we get hooked, you could say. How can unpleasantness exist and and we can still be free? Right? Because when we're going, no, 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 that's not freedom. You can feel that's not freedom of heart and mind. So what we what, what the question is when we turn towards unpleasant experiences? Um, I mean, the question is where is the suffering? So we see that there's the unpleasantness, but then we see that on top of the unpleasantness, there's the tension and the contraction of the aversion. The, the unpleasant experiences of body that's not optional. The Buddha even even you know with his um, great free heart and mind still had unpleasant body sensations. There's um, stories of him, you know, saying, you know, Ananda, will you do the talk tonight? My back hurts. I'm going to go rest. (laughs) So he had, you know, a bad back. (laughs) Um, Quote, unquote, a bad back. Uh, But what we start to see is that the tension and the aversion is optional. That that extra suffering is optional. And what we are doing really is we are increasing our tolerance for allowing unpleasantness to be. Now, of course, we take care of ourselves. If you have a headache, go ahead, take an aspirin or Tylenol. If your body, you know, I no longer sit on a cushion because my knees um, go really bad if I do. And so I'm taking care of myself. So, So we do take care of ourselves, but... 
when the conditions are right, especially in this kind of laboratory <coughs> meditation, we we get very close and intimate to try to see where's freedom with this experience. So let's say we have a headache. We can move towards that. First of all, is it as solid as we thought it is? Like, we have our ideas of a headache, but what's like a, a headache? What is that experience? And sometimes when I explore a headache, I see that there's actually, like there's pain, no pain, pain, no pain, that it actually pulses. It's not solid. It's not always painful. So we start to see that it's impermanent and, and um, changes. That already can allow some loosening of the aversion. We can ask ourselves, is this moment okay? That's a way that I kind of play sometimes with unpleasantness. Like, is this a moment okay? And something, yeah, yeah, I can do this moment. <laughs> it's the, all the thoughts and the, and the uh, kind of layers we put on top of it that make it seem not okay, but perhaps we can learn to let unpleasantness be. So with mindfulness, mindfulness is our great support. With mindfulness, we have the possibility to look at how we're responding and relating to what's happening and to consider loosening the grip of our reactivity. Or we don't actually loosen the grip of the reactivity. Mindfulness does that work. We just um, um, pay attention and, and uh, explore what's going on. And mindfulness, as we said, gives us some choice, some potential for freedom. So like restlessness. Restlessness is unpleasant. <coughs> so restlessness is, is present, and usually we're like, no, I want this to go away. I notice sometimes when I'm meditating, the mind's restless, and I'll be like trying to settle it, which is not a bad thing to do. That's okay. Try to settle it. And then finally I'll go, oh, it's restlessness. Restlessness is what's happening. And even that, I can feel my mind go, oh, okay. It's just restlessness. And so the reactivity, when we're not really paying attention, the reactivity kind of makes it tighter and tighter. But with the mindfulness, we'll be like, hmm, restlessness feels like this. Jumpy in the body, mind all busy. Sometimes I'll put my awareness kind of like out here and just say, okay, restlessness, just do what you need to do. (laughs) I'm here. (laughs) And then is there suffering? That's the question. Then is there suffering if, if... if that's the response. Unpleasant emotions. We'll talk tomorrow about all kinds of emotions, but that's another place that we can turn towards. So we all have our favorite afflictive emotions. My favorites are um, fear and anger. I'd say those are the two. <laughs> I've spent a lot of time learning about both of those. I remember my earliest retreats, I'd go into the teacher and I'd say, well, today it's uh, fear and anger, and then the next time I go back and say, well, today it's anger and fear, and <laughs> sadness and anger, <laughs> and <laughs> really um, done a lot of exploration. And one time, just because I got curious like about loosening the grip, right, or the reactivity to fear, I wrote a, a list of all the kinds of fear I'd explored in my practice. And I started out with 13, and I got to 24 by the time I finished. And, and for me, that would just kind of made it lighter. It was like, oh, was too, look at this. Look at how creative fear is. Wow. And then I did it with anger, and interestingly, I came up with 24 also. 24 kinds of anger. I just, I just want to normalize all this. It's, it's, it's just nature. And, and so this is already pointing to not-self. Not-self is not taking it so personally, right? 
just because it, so if we're, there's anger, we can take it very personally. We can think that I'm a bad person because there's anger. I shouldn't be feeling anger. Spiritual people don't feel anger. I gotta do something with this anger. Anger's like this. It's a burning feeling or a clenching in the heart or has <laughs> all this energy, has thoughts of judgment and self-righteousness. It's like, can I be with that energy? Can I hold it? Obviously, we don't want to act it out. But if we, if we can turn towards it we can and hold it, then we won't act it out so much. It's not my anger, it's anger. So there's this non-identification that helps with freeing the mind. We call it non-identification when we don't overhone it. So yes, there is a way that if anger is present, I'm responsible for taking care of it. So in that sense, it is my anger. It's manifesting in this um, body, heart, mind, right? Um, So we don't deny that level. But on another level, it's causes and conditions coming together. It's not personal. I don't have to over-own it or identify with it. And so what we see is that freedom comes from not getting rid of the anger or not getting rid of the headache, but freedom comes from not resisting it, not fighting against it being with it, with mindfulness. However, you may have noticed that there's a lot of resistance, right? So these unpleasant experiences come up and we're like, no, go away, no, go away. There's a a favorite story that I have, which some of you probably heard me read before, and I'm going to read it one more time because I love it so much that it explains kind of how this works. In some ways, this story explains our whole meditation practice. It's from um, Joseph Goldstein's book on um, mindfulness. And it has a cat in it, which I like a lot. In India, I was living in a little hut about six feet by seven feet. It had a canvas flap instead of a door. I was sitting on my bed meditating, and a cat wandered in and plopped down on my lap. I took the cat and tossed it out the door. Ten seconds later, it was back on my lap. We got into a sort of dance, this cat and I. I tossed it out because I was trying to meditate to get enlightened. But the cat kept returning. I was getting more and more irritated, more and more annoyed with the persistence of the cat. Finally, after about a half hour of this coming in and tossing out, I had to surrender. There was nothing else to do. There was no way to block the door. I sat there, the cat came back in, and it got on my lap. But I did not do anything. I just let go. Thirty seconds later, the cat got up and walked (laughs) out. That's our meditation practice, isn't it? It's like, no, no, I don't want this. I didn't sign up for this. No, no. Okay. And then things tend to shift somehow. Not, I can't, I'm not making any promises. <laughs> but but there's, there's space. Space opens up through that surrender to like, oh, this is the way it is. Here's another one that um, Suzuki Roshi's story that is, encourages surrender. On the fourth day of our meditation period, we sat with our painful legs, aching backs, hopes and doubts about whether it was worth it. Suzuki Roshi began his talk by saying slowly, the problems you are now experiencing will go away, we were sure he was going to say. We'll continue for the rest of your life, he concluded. (laughs) The way he said it, we all laughed. 
There's great unbinding in that sentence that he said. It's like, oh, okay. Maybe I can stop resisting this truth and learn how to live with it with grace, kindness, mindfulness, freedom. So this whole process is one, of, is one of unbinding the heart and the body and actually the, the mind and actually the body too. Because everywhere we can't go, we're bound up. Everywhere we can't go in this body-heart-mind process, our energy is bound up. What we're afraid of is, is, is um, bound up in contraction. And every time we touch what's unpleasant, we touch our pain, with mindfulness, we're releasing just a little bit that binding. It's not fast. I'm sorry, I can't promise you that. Um, it's not linear. There's ups and downs. But we're headed uh, steadily in that direction. And if we look back over the years of our practice, um, my teacher recommends you evaluate every five years. So if we look back over, you know, like five years ago, we go, oh yeah, okay, there is more capacity in this being to be with what's unpleasant without having to react. Yeah, I'm still working it, but 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 there is more capacity and less um, need to reject the experiences of heart, body, and mind. So there's a kind of um, greater and greater rest in this willingness to be with what is true in our experience, that surrender has a a rest quality in it. We're, We're practicing a kind of unconditional relaxing into our full humanity, our embodied beingness on this planet. So, dukkha dukkha, the suffering uh, in what's unpleasant, and the understanding um, that the suffering is optional, that we can free our hearts and minds. So the second kind of dukkha is the dukkha of um, change, called viparinama dukkha. And this is um, our conditioning leading to suffering around pleasant sense experiences and pleasant mind states. So with this kind of dukkha, we go more deeply into the challenges of human existence. And we see that what's pleasant contains the possibility of dukkha because it changes, right? It doesn't last. Darn. We keep hoping that we can make it last. We keep hoping that we can um, get the, the, the satisfaction that we want in life from these pleasant sense experiences. So one translation of dukkha related to this um, kind of dukkha is unsatisfactoriness. The fact that pleasant experiences, while they do provide us some solace, they, they do, um, they feel good. <laughs> They're, they can't provide us with like lasting happiness, and in that way, they are unsatisfactory. Or unreliability, another translation. They're not reliable. So, as Chas was saying yesterday, this goes against our conventional um, ideas of happiness. Our conventional ideas is, yeah, accumulate as much pleasantness as you can, and, and that's the best you can do. <laughs> and get rid of, of course, the unpleasant, or don't experience that, and that's the best you can do as far as happiness goes in this world. Um, but it, that's so limited. <laughs> it's so conditional. And... Um, as we all know, conditions continue to change. So it's, it's an actually, it's a stressful way of trying to find happiness. And stress is actually another translation of dukkha. 
It's stressful because we're always looking for what will do it. it and, it's, and it's always just out of our reach, or if we have it, there's this um, edginess of knowing that it's going to change, because we do know that. <laughs> we pretend we don't know it for a while, but even that pretending we don't know it is stressful. We can keep up that truth. Um, so there's, there's so much stress in this formulation for happiness. I remember my first um, long retreat that um, I wound up doing five months when I was 24, and um, my life was still young, not really formed. And I remember I went through a, a, a month period of like, the question was, how am I going to be happy? That was like the, the overriding question, how am I going to be happy? And I came up with all these scenarios that were like going to do it. Would be like, oh, you know, I was really into meditation. I'm gonna just get this like little cabin in the mountains, and I'll just meditate, and I'll be happy. And then I'd be like, oh, but I'm gonna get lonely. I'll live in a spiritual community with others, of like-minded people. We'll meditate together, and I'll be happy. Oh, but they're gonna bug me. <laughs> they're gonna irritate me. I'll I'll get married and have kids, and that'll make me happy. Oh, I don't want that responsibility. And this went on for a month, really. Like, it was just the theme all the time. How am I going to be happy? How am I going to be happy? And everything came up like, wasn't going to be perfect. So here we are. Life is not perfect, right? And I was really distraught. Every morning, I remember waking up for a month every morning, and the first thing I noticed was fear. I was so afraid because everything kept coming up. No, it's not going to work. And then one afternoon, I had an interview with my teacher, and I went in and I said, "It looks like nothing in this world's really going to kind of do it, make me like permanently happy." It's like, yeah. <laughs> and I said, "So I guess." the only place and time I can be happy is just in the present moment. She's like, yeah. (laughs) And that afternoon, the fear went away. It just went away. Because I started to look for happiness in some place where there was some possibility for it, which was my relationship to just this moment. And whether there could be um, the capacity to hold this moment, whether pleasant or unpleasant, without the need to fix it or make it different or to hang on to something that would make me happy. And a great peace entered my meditation. I quit resisting the truth of the kind of world that we live in where we can't peg down happiness, but interestingly, by quitting resisting that, I found peace. So we do this deep exploration in how we relate to pleasantness. Is is our relationship to pleasantness open-hearted? Meaning, yes, we enjoy it. We're allowed to enjoy pleasant experience. It doesn't mean that we're supposed to get rid of them or not enjoy them at all and become serious. And um, No, we enjoy um, sense it, pleasure. pleasure. But, but when does it, for me, the, the great... Um, Exploration is when does it start going? When does the heart and the mind start going like that? When does it start becoming stressed out, tense, contracted? I want this to stay. How can I keep this? How can I get this? How can I... So you can feel it. We can feel the closing down of the heart and mind around what's pleasant. That's dukkha. Now, often we don't want to do this exploration because we want to get lost in the pleasantness. So this kind of exploration takes more commitment to truth than the exploration around unpleasantness. 
unpleasantness were really like, yeah, I want to investigate this so it'll go away. Um, the subtext, right, so it'll go away. Um, which doesn't work as a subtext, but that's another story. Um, but with pleasantness, we get so entranced by the object of pleasantness that, that we miss the stress of wanting to keep it. And so with meditation, we look at the relationship again to pleasant, the object, in this case, pleasant, a pleasant object, or an object that we're experiencing as pleasant. Is there any stress? Sometimes it's, it's really noticeable. How about like you have a great sitting, great sitting meaning it was pleasant. <laughs> that doesn't mean a great sitting, but that's what we think, right? So like, oh, and you come into the hall the next time you sit down and it's like, it's different and you're like, oh, no, I want what I had. Right? And, and oh, give me what I had. I want that pleasant sitting again. And so it's obvious, right? It's like grasping. Like somebody said, there's nothing like a good sitting to ruin your day. <laughs> and sometimes it's just subtle. Like last night, I was watching the sunset. Winter sunsets can be so beautiful, right? Kind of those subtle pink-purple um, horizon. And I was curious, of, you know, like how the mind was with that pleasantness. And mostly it was actually pretty open, and, and there wasn't much grasping. But there was a, just a teeny wings of, can I grab this a little bit more? <laughs> it wasn't, it was subtle, it was like, oh, just get this a little bit more. How beautiful it is, right? So sometimes it's just subtle like that. But what we see is that when that grasping is present, what it does is it separates us from whatever it is. It separates us from what's happening now, what's truly happening, so that little twinge in the mind separating me from the sunset. It was not a big deal. I was just exploring. But um, what we start to see is that when we're wanting to keep pleasantness, we're actually losing, we're missing out on what's actually happening. Because it's a shutting down. It's a shutting down. It's a shutting down of heart and mind. And so then we miss life, wanting something else, or wanting it to stay. And then we bring mindfulness to that. What happens when we bring mindfulness to that shutting down, that contraction, that attachment, whatever you want to call it? Sometimes it lets go. It's like, oh, that's not helpful. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes we have to explore it a little bit more. Like, what are the stories? We can get really interested in the stories of grasping. The the, the overall story of grasping is like, if you keep this pleasant thing, you will be happy. Or if you get this pleasant thing, you will be happy. So we can hear the stories and then go, hmm. Mara might be around here somewhere. (laughs) Seems to be a bit of delusion going on. Or the story might be, if you don't get this pleasant thing, you are going to die. Like, it's that intense sometimes, but it's, it's, it's unconsciously intense like that. It's like, you've got to have it. Sometimes I'm so interested in like what links I will go to get something pleasant. <laughs> like, let's say sometimes when I'm teaching and I'm... Um, we take our food up to a room that's far from the dining hall and I haven't put any salt on it. I like salt. So I'll, be, I'll take a couple of bites and be like, oh, this needs salt. I want salt to make this more pleasant. And be like, hmm, do I want it enough to walk all the way downstairs and get it? <laughs> and you can kind of see in that question how much like the bondage of, of wanting, it, it tells us what to do. But with mindfulness, we can ask the question, is this worth doing or skillful to do or there's choice? Do I want to walk down there or not? 
It's super interesting, isn't it? I think so. So, so as I said, it's okay to um, enjoy pleasant experiences. And um, meditation actually opens up our senses so that I think we, 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 we connect with pleasant sense experience more deeply because we're here for it. And you've probably noticed that on retreats, you, that, that um, you'll, you'll suddenly it'll feel like you drop into a space where um, your senses are heightened and, and the mind isn't turbulent, you know, that like the hindrances are at bay and you're just with what's present. And, and it's so satisfying. It's so... Um, not ultimately, but conventionally satisfying. Um, and that we don't need actually big flashy things to make ourselves happy. That happiness can be so simple. That presence has, can have such a sense of joy with it. Deep presence when our mind isn't wanting something else. I remember the first time I really noticed tasting this when I was on, on that long retreat, again, that first long retreat. And I was washing dishes, and um, there was a window, and there was sun on the snow. And I, I felt so happy washing dishes and seeing the sun on the snow that I started to cry. It was like, I couldn't believe how simple it was. And it was so, I was so happy because my mind didn't want anything else but what, it, what was here. Sometimes when there's a, um, a lot of dukkha going on, um, like dukkha dukkha going on, and your retreat's really intense, it can be helpful to actually look for pleasant sense experiences. I just want to throw that in there. To soothe the, the system, the nervous system, the heart, the mind. Um, and, and, you know, there's always so much beauty. Like here, it's beautiful. Um, so, so, or a cup of tea and enjoy a warm cup of tea. Or it's, it's good to do that if there's a lot of dukkha and you feel like you're just kind of going down and, and your energy's, you know, going down and you're going, um, yeah, have a cup of tea and look out the window at the lake or the clouds or the beautiful trees against the sky and um, refresh yourself. It's a skillful use of pleasantness. And another, just one last um, kind of um, way to work with grasping when we're wanting or you feel the mind like trying to hold on or anything is to, is to relax back into receiving. Because wanting is forward and upright. It's, you can feel the energies like that. <laughs> and then so we can relax back and down. It's like, oh, right here, right now. And that's always an option for us. We can make that movement right here, right now. Both of these these encounters with dukkha dukkha and with vipari nama dukkha, they 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 tenderize our hearts, they soften our hearts when we deal with mindfulness. So we're learning how to you could say soften into life. And there's sometimes an even heartbreaking quality to it, but it's a poignant one, and one that's connected. It's like the heart. Um, 
breaks open into love of this world. A kind of mature love that understands the way things are. So it it actually breaks down our defenses against life. Grasping and aversion are a defense against against, uh, life as it is. And what we're doing is melting those defenses with mindfulness and awareness and love. And as they melt, we become more and more connected with life. There's less of a, of a wall between our hearts and the world, you could say. And we also notice that there's a deepening sense of spaciousness in the heart and the mind. Lightness, not so um, burdened with seriousness about everything that comes through. Nikaya, one of the Buddhist discourses. Develop a mind that is vast like space, where experiences both pleasant and unpleasant can appear and disappear without conflict, struggle, or harm. Rest in a mind like vast sky. We have the capacity to do that. So the last kind of dukkha, and I've done pretty good, I'm on time here, I think, is um, Sankara dukkha, or the dukkha of um, conditioned uh, reality. It's called sometimes called the suffering due to conditioned formations. So this one refers to the stressful nature of conditioned phenomena. So that includes uh, all of us, all of our experience because of the continual arising and falling away and the contingent nature of our being, the dependent nature of our being. So everything here arises only when certain conditions come together, like Chess was talking about yesterday, and those conditions are constantly changing. So what we are is a momentary set of conditions connected to all other sets of conditions which are constantly changing. Not too stable. So that's the the dukkha of this, is the instability, the constant um, ending and reforming and ending and reforming. And sometimes we experience this kind of dukkha as a very low-grade anxiety. Well, sometimes maybe it's a much stronger anxiety, but there's a, it's like a low-grade, um, yeah, anxiety, a low-grade edginess, um, because we, we prefer a little more security. It's the insecurity of, of it that um, creates this kind of anxiety. Ed Brown, his Zen teacher, says, Funny thing, you start sitting and your life unfolds. Sitting meditation is beyond your conception, beyond your agency. It's beyond your doing or structuring. You sit down here and your life unfolds unfolds without you directing it. That's the good news and it's the bad news. It's out of your control. And isn't that great? If it were up to you to control things, how utterly challenged that would be with so many things misbehaving. You might not appreciate their liveliness while you are busy wanting them to be peaceful, calm, or serene. Your life opens up and you become more interested in how things are manifesting as you stop telling them to be different than they are. 
letting go. <laughs> Each type of dukkha is about letting go and kind of deeper and subtler levels of letting go. We're letting go of managing, being micromanagers of, of this being of life. We still respond appropriately. It's not passivity. But there's, you could say, more flow with, with the changing nature of things, of this being. Here's another way of putting it from um, After the Ecstasy, the Laundry by Joseph Cornfield. As one senior lama has said, perfection must be around here somewhere. Where is it? Is it the next experience or the one after that? My true practice is patience, not wanting anything special or unusual to happen. As soon as I see striving and expecting, I know I've lost the great perfection. The hardest thing I still have to pass through is a realization that there is no final perfect condition to rely on. It is all fundamentally insecure changing. You don't learn this quickly. You have to let go into this ordinary perfection again and again. So part of Sankara Dukkha is the fact that things go towards entropy. Joseph Goldstein um, describes Sankara Dukkha. Without doing anything, your house or your apartment gets dirty. And so there's this, like, just to maintain this being is so much work. <laughs> That's part of Sankara Dukkha. I've done retreats in the Mahasi style where you know like every few seconds what you're doing and so it's just like you're brushing your teeth, you have to know every like you know, thing that you're doing and be like, Oh, this is so much work. <laughs> and then you have to feed it and clothe it <laughs> it's um it's intense. <laughs> and the other part of Sankara Dukkha is the um is this is the fact that we're contingent, we can't separate ourselves out of life and, and be independent and control everything, is that there's a sense impingement, that's how it's called in Buddhism, that our senses um, are impinged upon all the time by sight, sounds, smells, tastes, and sensations, right? And thoughts. And they just keep coming, and you can't control them, right? Like, you sit down and, and you're like, okay, mind, stop thinking. And the mind doesn't stop thinking. You're sitting here and the heat hits a certain point, it starts clanking, clank, 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 and like you can't control it. And um, what happens is that we feel really vulnerable because of that. There's a certain vulnerability in being human. Wow, if we didn't like the fact that things are out of control, we even less like the fact that <laughs> there's this vulnerability. And yet, and yet, this vulnerability means that we're alive. It's like the edge of vulnerability is where life blossoms moment after moment, this being, life as it manifests in this being, opens moment after moment. And so there's this, you could say when we resist sense impingement or resist that we're contingent beings, it's really stressful and unpleasant. But when we don't resist it, so when we let go, There's this openness to life that's, that's very beautiful, and life is fresh moment by moment. And it's this awesome mystery that we can't even begin to explain.
Scheibe kommt. There's a great story. Um, John Engler once uh, asked Deepa or said to Deepa who I mentioned the other day, the um, very um, well-known uh, and very adept yogi from um, India. I said to Deepama once, very early on, that the outcome of practice sounded pretty dull and blot to me. Once you got rid of desire and aversion, where was the chutzpah? Where was the pizzazz? Where was the juice? Life would be pretty tepid and uninteresting if you didn't enjoy anything at all. To my surprise, she broke out laughing. No, she said, you don't understand. Life is so much more full of zest now than it was before when I was carrying all that baggage around. Now each experience has its own taste, and then it passes and it's gone, and then the next experience has its own taste. The conviction was not in her words, but her spontaneous laughter at my question. Each moment has its own taste. She said it's so much more full of zest. That's the aliveness that we feel when we let go into the way things are. is how it's explained in the discourses, the shorter discourse on the destruction of craving. The Buddha preaches to a deva who wants to know how in brief a bhikkhu or a, I'm going to say a practitioner, how in brief a practitioner is liberated. The practitioner becomes learned that anything is not suitable to settle in. They become learned, learning all things thoroughly and accurately recognizing all things. When a bhikkhu abides seeing that nothing is worth adhering to, they directly know that everything, whatever feeling they feel, whether pleasant or painful or neither unpleasant nor painful, no, neither unpleasant or pleasant, they abide contemplating impermanence in these feelings. Contemplating thus, they do not cling to anything in this world. When they do not cling, they are not agitated. When they are not agitated, they personally attain nirvana. The deepest kind of happiness. Or perhaps here's a poetic, more um, feminine way of saying the same thing. It's from a book called The First Free Women, which is a translation of the poems of the early nuns. It's a modern translation that many of us teachers are very much enjoying. You're probably going to hear a lot of these poems over the next years. Um, and this one's called Another Sama. So this is one of the early nuns, and it's, this is her enlightenment poem. So the tradition is to write a poem when one becomes enlightened. After 25 years on the path, I'd experienced almost everything except peace. When I was young, my mother told me that I would find true happiness only in marriage. Remembering her words all those years later, something in me began to tremble. I gave myself to the trembling, and it showed me all the pain this little heart had ever known and how countless lives of searching had brought me at last to the present moment, which I happily married. Can you imagine? We've been living together ever since without a single argument. That's <laughs> it for anything in the talk was useful, you can notice that and
And you can let the rest of the words fly away, drift away, as you settle back into this heart-body-mind process, just as it is now. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.